0: Plushcare.com/slash/weightloss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a twenty-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase. Today. Visit Douglas.ca slash Canadaland to claim this offer. That is Douglas.ca slash Canadaland. to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Alternative used to be a thing. Remember that? Alternative culture, alternative music, alternative news weeklies. Yes, I know, a bunch of them still exist. Fewer than before, dozens have gone under, a handful in Canada. Those that are left are struggling. They are arguably much less important than they once were. For a lot of people of a certain vintage, this was the first newspaper that actually was for you, that actually cared what young people were into. And for a lot of journalists, this was a way to get started. I moved to Montreal in the mid-90s to go to school, and I stuck around afterwards. There was the Montreal Hour and the Montreal Mirror. Both are now dead. Rupert Bottenberg was an editor at the Mirror for many years. Today, he is a visual artist, a member of the Mass Collective, onmass.info, And you're going to hear me talk with him in a minute about alt-weeklies. Actually, first, we talked about music and comics. But then we spoke about alt-weeklies, what they meant, and what happened Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. Canadians prefer and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now there's an opioid crisis. Right now there's a mental health crisis but right now it is mental health week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people, you can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. FreshBooks.com is the exclusive sponsor of Canada Land. You should use FreshBooks if you want to file invoices electronically, if you want to get paid electronically, if you want to get paid quicker, if you want to keep better track of your business.
1: For all of this, check out FreshBooks.com. you were a music editor for how long? I was the music editor at the Montreal Mirror for 13 years. huh. Prior to that, I worked at the Mirror for about two years as a music freelancer, and that's what basically convinced them but also, I was really good with deadlines. I was really fastidious and diligent, and that's kind of like what was needed in the position of an editor because somebody has to have their, yeah. their shit together, so to speak.
0: Like in Montreal, like a city of slackers, you always struck me as a
1: good, hard German. You know, yes. you kind of had yeah. the, you could yeah. crack the whip. And yeah, no, I am thankful in that respect for my uh, for my upbringing. In yeah, sense. I mean, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a uh, in a super like conservative or abusive household or anything, but it's just those little things that you kind of pick up on that like. You know, punctuality is just assumed to Yeah, be. it's not an option. Like, you know, if you tell someone you're going to be somewhere at a certain time or have something in for a certain time, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Yeah. If, if forever – for whatever reason, it doesn't show up you kind of got to explain why and just shrugging your shoulders and giggling you know doesn't really cut it you know <laughs> that must have been a source of constant tension with various uh, music freelancers and your yeah, employee it was interesting I remember when I you know once remarking that what I needed for my uh, my little sort of area my little cubicle area uh, at the paper would have been like a whole variety of like okay I need a psychiatrist couch over here for some of the writers I need one of those kind of like classic you know interrogation desks with a light in the face for some others I need a sort of like a a little pampered throne with some chocolates for others. You know, each of the uh, different writers had their own kind of neuroses and so on and so forth. But, you know, they each had their strengths too. Yeah. Even the ones who couldn't necessarily write from a technical point of view all that well, you know, misspelled and had punctuation errors and so forth. I can do most of that cleanup up and there's copy editors and proofreaders. So that can be taken care of what you can't really inject into anyone's writing is spirit and energy and engagement with the uh with the uh, with the, the readership. Yeah. I mean, and you must have
0: had a field day. I mean, you were the music editor of uh Montreal's Alternative Newsweekly in a period where Montreal's music scene is arguably the most interesting music scene of any city in
1: the world. Yeah, or at least at that point, you know, the hottest um you know, I still think Shibuya in Japan at the time was was more interesting. Okay, uh, it was Shibuya, but that was you know it's a coin what, toss.
0: Whatever. Montreal, is Shibuya, but yeah, you
1: yeah. Know. But uh, no, it was. Uh, but what that meant also is that my phone was constantly ringing, and I was constantly being harassed by writers from Europe and from the states. Like, you know, they saw me as a good starting point for you know a report on the right. Montreal scene at the time because one, well, I was Anglo. Although the interesting thing was, I always made a point. Of saying, you know, by the way, in addition to Arcade Fire, Deers, Stars, uh, Wolf Parade, all these basically bands that uh, in part or in all were expats, people who weren't even from Montreal, who had come to Montreal to live there because of the very inexpensive rents and the healthy, vibrant art scene. I kind of pointed out, like, look, there's uh, not only is there stuff going on and always has been stuff going on in other areas of music, like, look, what Kid Koala is doing with hip hop, what Tiga is doing with uh, electronic dance music. Uh, I always really, and this always got cut out of their articles, you have to talk about Jérôme Mignard, you have to talk about Pierre Lapointe, like all this great francophone music that's going on in Montreal. And that somehow always ended up on the cutting room floor. Because you're born and raised Montreal. Uh, Born in Nova Scotia. My parents were teaching out at uh, Acadia University, but uh, my dad got a job at Concordia before I was two years old. So Uh uh, I don't even remember Nova Scotia. So yes, I'm a Montrealer, lifelong.
0: Yeah, and you're uh, bilingual, and and you, more than anyone I knew in the little Anglo bubble had cultural ties to the Quebecois world there, both in music and in cartooning.
1: Well, comics in specific, I mean, you know, the the music connection just sort of came naturally from the job. You know, it was the... Uh, and I remember being very touched by that because at the very beginning when I took over as music editor, we were getting very little in the way of press releases or contact from the francophone side of the music scene. They just assumed that the mirror was precisely that, the Anglo bubble. And somehow word got out that Rupert Bottenberg took calls from... French relationist de price from, from uh, publicists and from bands mm-hmm. and uh could respond well in French and actually cared and understood as much as you know, it was important to me whenever possible to put non white people on the cover of the damn paper uh, in contrast to you know the other the, the more staid uh, conservative like the the French language news weeklies yeah uh, which got to a point where it was just every week it 's like some white haired white skinned blue eyed french speaking québécois on the cover of the paper, and that 's that's not – I mean, that's Quebec, but that's not Montreal. Yeah. Montreal is a melting pot. It's cosmopolitan like the rest of – or much of the rest of Canada. Yeah. You know, obviously there's the the bottom line that if you're doing garbage music, sorry, I'm not really going to make an effort. Maybe I'll get you a little listings photo just so you leave me alone, but – But there's plenty know, of great music from the... Lots of great music. Yeah. Lots of really great music because – in no small part because the uh, – I mean, it's a little bit interesting because, you know, Quebec is Quebec. It's not France. It's, they've got their own thing. They're much more rock-oriented. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, you know, a lot of those musicians there were actually uh, expats, transplants from France. France does not have – I mean, name one great French rock and roll band from I cannot France. I cannot do you that. You can't. Yeah. You can't because there are none. There are some great new wave bands. Uh, lots of great bands that kind of mix folk music with uh, kind of rock energy. Uh, ska had a big influence over there. But it, this is not a deficiency. This is uh, – to them, rock and roll was – they call it en couleur. Like it's just a color. It's a, like the way a painter will use different colors. Right. They will bring in elements of rock and roll. But it's not something that they are uh, married to the way that North American Anglos are. Like this is – for an english speaking north american rock and roll was kind of for the longest time our baseline music yeah so uh, everything kind of grew, grew out of that. that yeah you, know? you use that as a base platform whereas yeah. the, the french would use more like the uh, the chanson the, uh, sure. the the kind of jazz flavored pop music that sort of thing right where the like what
0: Serge Gainsbourg came
1: out of yeah on, exactly yeah. precisely
0: it's a noble uh, a noble position to take i could just hear hmm. the sound of you bashing your head against the wall repeatedly i mean the the anglo hipsters i knew in montreal didn't seem to have much interest or access to the french speaking world and, you know
1: no but there was there was an improvement over the course of the time that i was there and it's you know it was a two way street in the sense that it takes two to tango and it took also an effort on the part of the quebecois hipsters to kind of start connecting and plugging into what was going on with the Anglo scene. Yeah. And before you know it, you start having acts like Malajub who are like, you know, getting on Pitchfork and getting a little bit of buzz going on and things like that. Yeah, so. and who
0: are great. But I, I always felt like – I mean, the most exposure I got to it was through comics and that, and that, you know, I think – That's a whole different thing, yeah. And that was sort of through you too. I mean, I, I knew about you before I met you. I knew mm-hmm. about these comic jams in Montreal through, yeah. through a friend of mine. And, um, and that was my chief crossover point with uh, – With French Montreal. be honest,
1: mine too. I mean, uh, you know, I had uh, maybe a couple of Quebecois friends. I grew up in a very Anglo... In the enclave out in the West Island, yeah. where it was you know basically everyone I hung with was Anglo and had very little practice. I didn't really start speaking French well until I got a job downtown and sort of had no choice, uh, you know, like minimum wage job kind of thing. But you got to speak French with the, the French customers. Yeah. the uh, The thing was, it was the, the comic jams as well, and I kind of took a leap of faith when I started doing the comic jams at um, really just to. This was the, the early 90s. I was working a, uh, as a busboy at Purple Haze, uh, a bar on yeah. Santa Street. Back when the scene was all centered around that area yeah. on the plateau, it hadn't started to move up to Mile End and then Little Italy and mm-hmm. then Park X. Uh, it was still concentrated in the plateau. So I was working in that area, and Sunday nights were always really dead because um, – Point of Purple Haze, its primary clientele was college kids, and Sunday night they're back at their you know dorms uh, or whatever, cramming their their homework, getting ready for the the, yeah. the student week. So Sundays were dead and I said to my boss, look, I've kind of got this idea like me and my buddies, sometimes my Anglo comic buddies will get together, make some coffee, smoke a bat and just jam out comics together. Why don't we try something like that a little bit? Why don't we try to reach out to this because, you know, alternative comics were sort of on the rise, you know, Dan Klaus and Peter Bagg and that kind of thing. So I said, you know. Let's give this a shot. And it didn't really last at Purple Haze because it, it wasn't a big – the only people who showed up were cartoonists and they don't really spend money. But it established the comic jams. And from the very hold first on, one, Hold on a second. I got I to gotta
0: mm-hmm. jump in here. Are you saying that you were the guy who started comic jams in Montreal or are you suggesting that you started comic jams?
1: Well, I started comic jams in Montreal. I mean, there was no. Had you known about this there thing? No, there was no other formal event. I mean, there was. Uh, Had you heard of a comic
0: jam before no, that? No. So you invented the comic jam.
1: I mean, it's quite possible that somebody you know elsewhere was doing something very similar. I mean, the Zap guys used to get together. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. That was like my that, model. But... Was the uh, that's what I think what we were originally inspired by when I was hanging out with Bernie Moreau at his place. But at that point, it was it was an informal. We were just getting together at Buddy's house, making coffee, and, like, it was – we were just doing it for – we might make little zines of what we had produced, but, um, no, as the comic jam, as a formal – public, structured event that was, to the best of my knowledge, my creation. I certainly didn't invent the idea of uh, comic artists jamming together.
0: No, but that's something like, you know, having a night at a bar where everybody gets together and does like, you mm-hmm. know, exquisite corpses. I, I I do one panel, pass it on to you. Yeah. Or we design, yeah. I mean, that's something that I hadn't heard of until you did it. And it seems like it spread. I mean, I know that it's certainly went it did. quickly to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Where else have you been aware of, uh, of it popping up?
1: Uh, well, it started popping up uh, various places like Boston, um, in, uh, in in New Brunswick, various places. Um, you know, I didn't follow it too closely. I was just, you know, having fun doing my own thing and eventually sort of passed the torch to yeah. others to do it. Yeah. I, I'm just quickly Googling here. I see
0: there were comic gems in New York, uh, Halifax, Vancouver, uh, Chicago, Hawaii.
1: It's still around. It still hangs around like it's um, – um, an ex of mine was um, she was using comic jams as one of the components of her PhD studies, and what I found out was that it still had a reputation. It still had there was an awareness of it, uh, particularly in the pedagogical environment. Yeah, uh, I'd meet these young like uh, university students, like young keeners in their early twenties, and they're like, you know, like yes, I consider the comic jam a great modality. I'm you know working that into my studies and blah blah blah. And it's like I'd be in, by the way, Rupert. Invented those things, and their jaws would just kind of hit the ground. So, well, once you crack into the pedagogical, postmodern academic world, you, yeah. you, you, you can write I'm your own I'm ticket after that. About, yeah, but I'm talking about more about like working with kids in in like primary school, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, that it turned out that it's a great device. Like it's uh, it's a great collaborative way to get I, kids. I know to, that I've done you know I've done workshops with uh, teenagers uh, in Montreal, but also up in uh, in in uh nunavik or nunavut i keep getting them mixed up but up in kankik which is a little village up in um the you know the part the northern part of quebec which is inuit uh, and they were the best bunch of kids i ever worked with but you know you show up in one of those classes uh with a room full of teenagers as the guy who's like because of me no math class instead we're doing (laughs) comics your goal man they love you yeah love you yeah absolutely That's fantastic. I mean, that's a pretty interesting footnote to your Mm -hmm. career, which it seems like has gone in a bunch of interesting spots. More of a preface because uh, it sort of set the tone for a lot of things. Uh, Coming back to what we were talking about, the the francophones, with that very first one that I'd reached out to – I don't know how I pre-internet, how did I even get their content? I guess just bugging people like, do you have a number for Mm so-and-so, for Cirice, Richard Suicide, Henriette Valium, all these kind of uh, Quebecois cartoonists whose work uh, being so rooted in both uh, European bande dessinée and in uh, American underground, Zap Comics, Robert Crum and all that. The Quebecois really, because of their sort of cultural position as like the little pocket of Europe – in North America, they were at that perfect meeting point of that stuff. So I loved what they were doing. And in my, you know, crappy French I would call them up and leave messages on their on yeah. their answering machine. And uh, they showed up, and it was initially kind of, like, awkward. People weren't really sure about talking to each other, but... Yeah, they're cartoonists to begin with, so not the most social lot. Yeah, and then you got the two lot. solitudes in the house. Precisely, but the fact that we were all comic artists sort of negated the two solitudes. Yeah. In the sense that, well, we're all comic artists first and foremost.
0: You're not exaggerating. I mean, I, I knew some of these guys because of you, and then, uh, you know, we were publishing a comic out of a university, and we published mm-hmm. some of them. And I remember, yes. You know, most of my uh, exposure, like I say, to, to you know getting french friends and hanging out was uh, was through comics and through kind of i think uh, a a bridge that you that you built yeah. and uh, and yet it felt very much like they could come our way Mm-hmm. and uh, French musicians became a part of the Anglo music scene and French cartoonists became part of the mm-hmm. Anglo comic scene or it became a hybrid scene, didn't go the other way, you know? I mean, Quebec media and art, I mean, it's it's a whole universe and they really consume the hell out of their own stuff. But it doesn't matter how good your French is.
1: If you're an Anglo, you, you can't really break into that. Yeah, but I think that was more in us. That was, I, yeah. I, I feel very strongly that, uh, I mean, keep in mind that much of the Anglo community of Montreal The young artsy Anglo community uh, is not Montrealers. They're people coming from Victoria, B.C. or Edmonton or whatever. So they have very little grasp of of French. And then they sort of plant themselves in the hipster, the Anglo hipster zone, which, you know, Mile End was the the big area at the time of the Montreal music uh, explosion. And they kind of like live in that little cloistered world, that little shut off world where they only deal with people who speak English and they don't really – explore the city it's polite of you to say they and, and not you
0: jesse for the 10 years you were in montreal because yeah i lived well, in the plateau in Mile End, and, and my yeah, world you, was
1: english i never saw you as part of that i always saw you as uh, as kind of more like a free agent culturally <laughs> you know
0: it, it's interesting like it was such a small world and yet it kind of encompassed so much mm-hmm. uh, and the music scene that became this kind of storied montreal music scene at the time that i came there it was kind of like on fumes of me, mom and Morgan taller, and, and then like, yeah. and you were very attached to the uh, the Montreal ska scene, which kind of had this like yes. crossover with comics, yeah,
1: you know, like like, but no crossover with the hipsters, no. Oh my god, they despise ska, a little like, too earnest, I guess. A li- well, also too much fun, maybe too much about like it's not enough about looking cool. Yeah. And you don't really mind acting like kind of like a goof and dressing kind of nerdy and all this. But, you uh, don't really see Godspeed, you black emperor, skanking at uh, – No, yeah. no, 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 no. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're not so fond of puns and Ska really
1: enjoyed the puns. Yeah. Yeah. They're a little too much for even for me. But, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of the attraction – it's funny you mentioned the comics because a lot of the attraction to me um, in Ska, the larger – I mean, I just enjoy the music. I love old Jamaican rocksteady, uh, Jamaican soul music, essentially. Yeah. And that's where the ska thing came from, as well as the uh, the British punk scene. It was kind of a fusion of those two. So musically, I really enjoyed it. But also the visual aesthetic of ska, which was so rooted in two-tone records, yeah. which was all about black and white. You know, And there was a political message there, black black members and white members in the same band. Imagine yeah. that. But, you know, for someone who is coming from very kind of like a lo-fi, you know, production environment in terms of like, well, no, we, we can do photocopies. We can't do full-color litho. We can do black and white photocopies.
0: Yeah, mini comics and zines and Scott, it all yeah. it all kind of yeah. worked
1: together. The, the show posters and all that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was it was fun, and, and, and that spirit of fun, like, it kind of had
1: its moment, and then things got a little bit more self-serious and, and hipstery, and... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the ska thing was just doing its own thing and attracting, and there there was your real crossover. Yeah. You know, bands like the Planet Smashers, purely, entirely Anglo bands, the rest of Quebec just ate them up, like, they were hugely popular, uh, still are. Are those guys still touring? Are they still... They are. They are. Yeah. Uh, they, I think it's their... I think they're coming to the 20th anniversary of Stomp Records. Wow. And they just... They just keep at it. I mean, you know, they've all got, they've got kids, they pursued their own careers, but uh, they hold it together, you know? And yeah. uh, so there was that, that was another thing with the ska scene. That's also, I think where I connected with a lot of uh, Quebecois right. was in a scene that was like the, the Quebecois, because the Quebecois are on their own schedule. Yeah, uh, Music wise and culturally <laughs> in some respects, they're way ahead of the curve. And, and just in terms of time and when they show up to things. There is that. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. <laughs> Montreal style. <laughs> no, I mean, I,
0: I, I hit there when I was 18 and I couldn't think of a better place to be at that age.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, all, yes. all, all,
0: the, all this stuff kind of cross pollinating and kind of at the center of it was the
1: mirror. And mm-hmm. I think to a lesser extent the hour, the to hour. A lesser extent, yes, definitely. I mean, it should be mentioned that before even doing uh, music writing for the Mirror, the music writing thing came along because I'd been doing a little bit of writing for Vice. Yeah, um, I actually helped deliver the first issue of Voice before they dropped the O and became Vice. So I was involved with that from the from the very beginning, um, and that sort of led me over to the Mirror. But uh, as as a writer, uh, I came into the Mirror as music editor right at the tr- transition point when Quebec Or. The big, uh, you know, printing and publishing um, juggernaut uh, in Quebec bought the paper out. Uh, Alistair Sutherland, the editor in chief, and I kind of pow out at the beginning. And it's like that was the direction we wanted to take the Mirror as well, away from the kind of dull and, you know, not even terribly morally astute sort of uh, PC leftism, the holier than thou. And we wanted to make a paper that was raunchier, funnier, cooler, and more interesting. Um, and we took great pride that the very first cover story we did was Nashville Pussy, yeah, uh, the, the band that was uh, kind of blowing up at that point. And uh, that sort of set the tone, and we went from there. The heyday of The Mirror, you know, to compare it to the hour – and I think that, you know,
0: I, I admired writers at both, and I, I had connections yeah. to both and yeah, friends yeah. Both. The Mirror felt – like more of a mirror. It felt like it was more of a reflection of what it was like to live in that city mm-hmm. and the hour was like what was on the the alternative subsection of the mainstream media's promotional calendar that week. Yeah. If there was a movie being promoted it would be on the cover of the hour whereas the mirror I mean almost to a fault we had a joke that like if you live in Montreal long enough you get to be on the cover of the mirror. <laughs> you know and like you'd see like oh yeah my friend made a t-shirt he's on the cover of the mirror. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it really kind of almost felt like a little community newspaper. Mm-hmm. That reflected all these different strands of of this, you know, weird cultural life in Montreal.
1: Yeah. I think we did a good job. I was was very proud of that. And uh, I had a good city to work with at that point. Yeah. There was a lot going on. The thing about being a cultural journalist for a
0: paper like that is like as homey as it could kind of feel. And it was a small community of people. And like I know the hour guys all drank at the Copa. I don't know. Where did you guys drink?
1: We drank uh, initially at the uh, McGill Pub, which was on McGill. But uh, as over the course of the you know 15 years that I was working at the mirror, old Montreal started to get more populated, uh, more condos, more businesses. Yeah, McGill Street got kind of gentrified. Our beloved sleazy old pub uh, got transformed into uh, some shishi resto bar., yeah. for suits. So I moved over to uh, we all moved over rather to uh, Pub Victoria. Yeah, basically, that was just Tuesday nights when we put the, the paper to bed okay, we're going out for drinks. Right, right. I mean, and Montreal had a good, you know, the Saint-Cassette tradition and just, yeah, you know, socializing
0: yeah. with your colleagues. I mean, it yeah. felt like, I mean, just being kind of like vaguely connected to a bunch of people at both papers, if there was a band in town, if there was a writer doing a reading, if there was a mm-hmm. festival, if a new movie was coming out, it all kind of flowed through the offices of these weeklies. Yeah. And, and yeah. as people graduated from Concordia and McGill and like outgrew their school newspapers, they would start freelancing for one of these papers and they, mm-hmm. they, they get comped to go to something and, you know, you you get a free meal. Like, you know, I had friends who were writing the food reviews. I I remember you guys had Spanky Horowitz like doing the reviews of, like, hospital food and uh, Bolarama hot dogs Well, I asked him
1: about that. Like, you know, Spanky, you've got that huge, like, Star of David medallion. What are you doing shoving a hot dog in your face? And his answer was just, like, something along the lines of, uh, well, we invented salt and refrigeration, so it's okay now. You know, like... Come on, how many Jews do you know in (laughs) Montreal who keep kosher? That's right. True. (laughs) True.
0: It's sort of humbling looking back on it. You know, like, what we thought was important, who was on the cover, who wrote the cover? What the uh, you know d- debate mm-hmm. was about uh, in the letters section, or, or, or what opinion was expressed? All of this was secondary to what was actually driving the
1: paper. Mm-hmm. The, the the engine of the paper was really advertising, prostitute
0: yeah. ads, and music listings.
1: Yeah, it was the uh, it was the the class ads specifically. Uh, actually, more than anything, it was the she mails. Yeah, really? that was that was the big money maker. Was the she mails? Why? Ah, uh, because I guess there's a lot of dudes who like a little bonus Frankfurter with their uh, with their their boobs and all that, you know. Like, it seems uh, that's amazing. Like, yeah, I thought I, f- I had no idea that there, there would be such a huge market for that. But there you go. I thought that was niche, but uh, no, it's uh, bigger than you think, huh? Apparently. So it was shemale lust
0: and things like that that would determine your page count and uh, whether or not you could print stuff. That was the cash. Count. It helped a
1: lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like movie ads. They started to sort of dwindle. I mean, all ads started to dwindle. And frankly, when Craigslist came along, I mean, what killed the newsweeklies, or is killing whatever's left of the newsweeklies? It's Facebook. It's Craigslist. It's all of this stuff. Well, if
0: you're aiming at eighteen to thirty-four year olds, you know, I mean, it's newspapers, print. newspapers, print in general is yeah. in the shape that it's in, but specifically, you know, that age group, mm-hmm. the most fervent adopters of social media, and then you, you know, you couple that with like every kind of core thing that the Newsweekly provided, music listings, you know, hookups, sex listings, there's an app for that. There's an app for that. Yeah, yeah, precisely. It's funny because like everything that the weeklies were about for readers and for the writers Mm -hmm. was not what it was about as an economic model. No, no, no.
1: And I always understood that like, you know, the backbone of the paper is the listings, film and music listings. The main reason people would pick these papers up was not to read stuff under my amazing byline. No, it was to read... Not even to read; it's just to consult the listings. What shows are going on tonight? And that's how they started. If I,
0: if I, I don't really have my history so straight, but you go back to like the the Village Voice and the oh, East yeah. Village other. It was about like. You know, a four-page, like a big broadsheet that was just about where, where, are the, where are the bands playing? What's yeah. going on? Yeah,
1: what's going on? Here you go. And then somebody realized that they could put an article here or there. and Yeah, and that the, could that would fatten it up fatten up the paper and that could make yeah. more room for more ads. And before you knew it, the, the people selling futons were like, hey, let's put ads in there and so on and so forth. Jr. seemed like you were having a lot of fun.
0: You also did the comics issue, mm-hmm. you know, once a year. Mm-hmm. Like the alternative newsweeklies in other cities, like here with now, you know, in a, a lot of places – Old hippies were running the show. Yeah. And it felt like an old man's newspaper. It still feels like Mm -hmm. an old man's newspaper. It certainly was the lunatics running the asylum at the mirror. You know, you had sort of corporate overlords, but I I didn't sense that.
1: They did not give a damn about what we did as long as the money was coming in because our corporate overlords were all just doofus Quebecois, like coming into their SUVs from Laval, like, I mean, suburban dipshits to begin with and worse yet. Quebecois suburban dipshits. So totally clueless. You know, if it's not Star Academy, they don't know what it is. So they just said like, ah, these Anglos seem to be doing something right. So we'll just leave them alone. And the only time they came poking around was when, you know, advertising revenue was dipping. And all they would suggest was like, hey, let's put a banner ad on the front on the cover page. And we'd be like, that's stupid. And I think ultimately they drove the paper into the ground uh, in part just by not so much active bad decisions as passive bad decisions or absence thereof. Yeah. That the things they needed to do, develop our website, you know, already in like 99, 2000, we were telling them like, look, put 50K, just pump 50K into the website, get somebody in here. Let's update this thing. There's this whole new idea, social media. Maybe we could add an element of social media to the mirror website. Imagine what would have happened if we'd done that. What yeah. could have happened? Yeah, you know, but they—they're like, nah, they're just cheap, and they—they they don't want no. Nobody wants to stick their neck out so that upper management starts yelling at them. So. Well, the same
0: thing that made it so great probably doomed it, which is that like all around North America, they figured out a system that worked, certain kind of predictable advertising, and you know, yeah. was yeah. just going to come in. Nobody else really knew how to reach that demographic with anything in print. Mm-hmm. No, nobody had any vision in the business end of it. It was yeah. just like, put this thing out, and as long as it works, it works. But yeah. uh, when it stopped working, I mean, there's a lot know, to be
1: said for if. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But uh, there's also something to be said for the world changes. Yeah. And, you know, when you're looking down the, you know, you're looking down the highway and you see the change coming. You could have done something. By 99, 2000, anyone who didn't see that change coming, the change being that media would, would go from being print. To digital, Yeah. Anyone who didn't see that coming was basically unqualified for their job. Well, some people are still living in, in denial of that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, even, yeah. even with the death of all these papers and, and – yeah. uh, Well, much, listen,
1: much of management culture, they just want their big paycheck and then they just put on their earmuffs and they don't know what's going on.
0: Do you regret it? Do you wish they had changed course and that that still existed? I mean it is – like I know that you kind of left – you saw the way things were, mm-hmm. the way the wind was blowing and you went to pursue – art and illustration and comics again. Well, you know what? I
1: would have, I would have, even if the mirror was still roaring along, I would have left. Yeah. Um, It was time for me to step away from what was basically like kind of a silver medal, you know, also ran kind of career choice, which was journalism and move on to, move back to what was really important to me, which was the visual arts.
0: You, you never really had your heart in it the way that I mean. There are some people who edited it at alternative newsweeklies who were like, "This is a stepping stone for me in my journalism career, and I'm going to yeah. go work for a
1: big glossy in the states, or I'm going to go be an editor at uh, yeah, a, or a, at a daily, whatever newspaper. it may be." I mean, I think the people working for the alternative newsweeklies wanted to stay somewhere in the alternative media realm. Yeah, I, mean, I think very few people coming to a paper like the Mirror were looking for jobs. You know, like this is just a stepping stone to. You know the Gazette or something like that. They were, uh, you know, it wasn't wouldn't be terribly obvious where they would go. Yeah, but uh, but
0: that's Montreal. Here you see kids. They have a byline in you know it used to be the eye and now it's mm-hmm. the grid. And then the next day they're at the CBC or they're at the Globe or something. But yeah. there,
1: people kind of like carved yeah. out a little turf at a weekly and they could be yeah. there for a while. And to be honest, like you know there wasn't really. You know, there was no, there isn't much in the way of CBC to go to. There is a CBC office in Montreal, and there are some people who got jobs there. Small so outpost. Forth. Dimitri from the hour moved on to there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people moved to the Gazette, but there's not a lot of Anglo media. No, that's in, just in it. In so that you know, your your options are kind of limited. Yeah, but um, but you know, here's I want I want to say this. Like uh, I would say, my heart was in it, just because any task that I take on, you know, uh, I don't really see much point in doing something unless you're going to do it fairly correctly. I mean, that goes back to the German thing. Yeah. Like if you're going to do something, do it right or just don't bother. Yeah. So, I mean, I really did, you know, with the mirror, I really did put my back into it and, you know, did try to make the, the best music section I could and overall the best paper I could because I was very involved in other aspects of it.
0: No, I wouldn't suggest otherwise. I think that you were very committed to what you were doing week mm-hmm. to week, but I don't think you were terribly committed into where's this going to get me.
1: Yeah. No, I think I realized very early on that there was uh, not really uh, much in the way other than Alistair's desk. And uh, Alistair, by his own admission, was like, they're going to get me out of here on a stretcher. I was just – I mean, it was all, the mirror was only ever supposed to be a placeholder job until yeah. you know, my art career took off. But I kind of realized, especially now, it's very clear, it's clear as day, that uh, the only way you're going to get an art career to take off – is by throwing yourself into it entirely. Yeah, And that's what I did a couple of years ago, about five years ago. I mean, I still held on at the mirror, but I was really – I was just sleepwalking through it in the last couple of years. I did not care. And I just kind of like – just running on fumes, running on like muscle memory really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean when I left the mirror, it was uh, it was high time and it was just the right time for me to kind of really just sort of cut ties. Like I don't do journalism. Yeah. at all, you know? Yeah, I feel like
0: we should like pour out some liquor for the Alternative News Weekly. I mean, like it, it almost was like the precedent of the internet. Give it away for free. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things were started by college kids in their dorm rooms. That's right. On, That's on right. one piece of paper. Get out there, have a message people want to hear, build up an audience, make people care about yep. it, find a way to make money off of it afterwards. And every one of these Alternative News weeklies has a founding myth where there's three people sniping over whose it was and it got stolen oh, from yeah. so-and-so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, out of that, a couple decades of gainful employment for journalists mm-hmm. and illustrators and photographers. Careers were launched, writers, artists came out of mm-hmm. that. Like it was really like a, an engine of cultural productivity,
1: yeah. Yeah. you know, in North that America. established a lot of precedents and I think just put something in people's heads that something like this needs to be there.
0: Yeah. And and the, and the ones that are still left for the most part seem to have lost that spirit. Yeah. To, a, you know, some degree or another, it doesn't feel as vibrant and they're just sort of like clinging to, to survival. It. Yeah. 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 That's a... I've taken us to sort of a depressing place to leave this. Oh, well. Okay, that's the show this week. I hope you liked it. You can email me with ideas for future shows at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I'm on Twitter at brown. You might want to have a look at the additional content on our website at canadalandshow.com. I make this program with help from Tanara Yelland. And I'll have a new episode up on Monday. If you like Canada land, recommend it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land. And this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.